This morning we are going to take a somewhat aside from our study in 2 Peter to reflect upon the resurrection, and uh, appropriately so. Uh, we want to uh, certainly take these opportunities to reflect upon the uh, seasonality of our, study, of our uh, provision of our salvation by Christ uh, we certainly, as has been mentioned last week and this week, really this is the whole reason that we celebrate on this day of the week, is to remind ourselves, to reflect upon that the, that was the day of his resurrection uh, that is recorded in God's word. And so that is why we transition to this day of the week within the church age, and uh, certainly as a, as a reminder of that, each, each Lord's Day that this is why we gather, this is why we set aside this day as the Lord's day, uh, because we are honoring uh, the uh, ultimate provision of our salvation. Uh, certainly on the death, on the cross, there was the uh, sacrifice made, the application of the blood, though is dependent upon the power of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We cannot disassociate all of these and so we see evidence in the scriptures that the church moved to this day as the day of celebration. And yet uh, we find that as we evaluate and consider how we try to relive, if you will, the first resurrection in many of our worship services, we lose track of sometimes what really happened that day. And so we find that many of our churches, um, and not condemned for doing this, but many of our churches uh, start their services very, very early in the morning. In the Philippines, it was 5 a.m. That's when sunrise was. It was 5 a.m., so they had to be at church. Their worship service started at 5 a.m. Uh, and, of course, that was last week for them. And so uh, we see other churches doing that, trying to get there to see the dawn happening and trying to uh, clearly associate with that event of the discovery of an empty tomb. Unfortunately, uh, that's as far as it goes. And because they start so early and they have their their morning activities, that's where it concludes. And then shortly after that, we find the majority going out and participating in, in pagan fertility aspects of bunnies and eggs and candy and things like that uh, to add to that. And one of the benefits, I think, of, of celebrating on Orthodox Easter is of the disassociation from all of that that we have an opportunity. When people say, well, why do you do this? And I say, well, I have biblical reasons. I have calendar reasons. But one of the reasons for me is because I can now disconnect from all of that very easily. And we can, because we, we know of its pagan origins and purposes. And so now I have an opportunity to focus my attention here. And furthermore, I have an opportunity to take a little bit more effort to be clearer in our understanding of what it means to celebrate a resurrection. 
And so when we look at these events, we want to consider uh, the Gospels. Those are our accounts that we want to look at. And uh, certainly as we go through the Gospels, you get in Matthew, which interestingly enough, even though Matthew is, is a longer book overall than Mark, uh, yet Matthew has the shortest information about resurrection morning. It has the shortest section giving us the least amount of information. Mark expands on that. Luke gives us some of the most information. And then John gives us things that were not really described extensively, although some things were there in Luke, uh, of what was not given to us elsewhere. And so we have this development over the four Gospels of this glorious day. You, and, and you can take these and... And there's some excellent presentations that meld these all together because they seem like, well, this seems like it's conflicting with that. Uh, when, and and uh, you almost need uh, to really follow this. You almost need like a split screen TV with four panels so you can follow who's where and what's going on, who is encountering Jesus at what point and in what place and in what order. And certainly when they are not, uh, it's not impossible to do this. And there's some excellent work that is out there. Uh, to look at the, how these events uh, meld together and interact with one another, that they are not uh, saying that the other one's wrong, but rather they are complementing one another uh, in their full description of that wonderful day. And uh, particularly Mary Magdalene, we have to follow her because she was with the women and then she wasn't with the women. She was on her own. And then she, so we have to follow her pretty carefully. She almost she needs her own little screen there. And then where's Jesus on each screen? And we can uh, engage with them as they encounter the empty tomb. And so uh, that work is done and, and it's excellent. And, and I encourage you, if you have any concerns in that area, to really study that. But as we develop this, there is a overlooked element of this day. And it is not overlooked by the New Testament writers, but rather by the church in our interest to focus in on an empty tomb and its discovery. We neglect the fact that that discovery was not joyous to the discoverers. So I'm going to invite you uh, to begin in the Gospel of Luke, probably one of the lengthier ones. We're going to be spending most of our time here. We're going to be going back into Mark as well as John, uh, and I will reference Matthew, but we're going to be focusing here on Luke chapter 24. If you want to turn your Bibles there, and we'll read through verses 1 through 12. We'll pick up in verse 13 a little bit later on, and we're going to try to get through the entirety of this, uh, well, of this chapter between this morning and tonight. So I have two messages to do that. This is now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. They and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? 
And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened." And so we have this account of the discovery of an empty tomb. And we say, oh, well, that's what they were looking for. Well, no, it wasn't. They weren't looking for an empty tomb at all. In fact, they were looking for a body, a dead body. That was their expectation. That was their desire, was to go and to take these spices and to complete the burial process that was done in a very hurried manner uh, a few days earlier by some men who took responsibility for that on the day of preparation. And so we find that they were doing that and, and they were coming to finish the job, to make sure it was done right. And they observed from a distance the act of bringing Christ down off the tomb, uh, of placing him into uh, his burial clothes, and then placing him into the tomb, and so off the cross to the burial clothes to the tomb. So they observed all that from a distance, the Bible says, and having observed where these, this was without really interacting with these men, they made a commitment that they would come back and finish the job following the holy days that would be in, or in between. And so we find that was their purpose. And Mark really brings this out extensively. Let's go to the book of Mark very quickly and see again what was going on in their hearts and minds as they were approaching his burial place. Mark 16 says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. This was not the activity of people that were anticipating a resurrection, was it? This is the activity of someone who is mourning and going to complete the burial process of a dead man. Their expectation was, and their concern, the Bible says, was who's going to roll away the stone? That was, not, that, that was their primary concern as they were uh, arriving there, in fact, it says here in, in chapter 16, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? That was their expectation, that they would come, that it would be just as they left it. They were not anticipating any great intercession. And even when they did see this, we find in other passages, that what their concern was that someone had taken the body. Even when they see the stone rolled away, that wasn't cause for joy in their heart. That didn't cause them to leap and say, oh, he's resurrected. No, they are still looking for a corpse. This was the condition of the disciples of Christ. They were in this, this stunned state that all of their expectation of Christ being the Messiah, he was going to be the one that was deliver us from the Romans, he was going to be the one that set up his kingdom, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Remember that discussion was less than a week ago, 
A few days ago, they had that discussion. Who is going to be great in the kingdom? Certainly, we're coming to a culmination. He's, he rode the donkey into the city. The people were yelling, Hosanna, uh, and everything looked like, this is it. It's coming. We're on the cusp of his great breakthrough. Because they were still earthly oriented. And so we find that they were not anticipating anything wonderful happening that day. In fact, they were still in the throes of mourning. And the discovery of the empty tomb didn't change that. It didn't resolve the thing when they arrived there and says, oh, the stone is rolled away. Wow, something wonderful has happened here. No, not whatsoever. It just caused even greater anxiety in their life. They saw the stone. What happened here? And in their conception of what happened is they're assuming that someone has desecrated this grave. Not that God has done some great wonderful thing. Their assumption is that someone has stolen his body away. And this is revealed when they encounter this man in the tomb area and says, where have you taken his body? Tell me and I'll go get it and we'll carry it. If you don't want it in that grave, we'll take it and put it in some other grave. We'll take care of it. It was not, where's Jesus walking? I mean, granted, she was talking to Jesus at the time. Uh, it, it, none of that. It was just, where is his body? And we'll take it. If it's, a, if it's something you didn't want in that tomb, if, if Joseph ch and changed his mind about wanting it in there, um, we'll take it. We'll put it somewhere. We'll cherish it. We'll anoint it. We'll have a proper burial. Um, we'll take it over to Bethany and put it where Lazarus was. Seems respectable, seems reasonable, right, for that expectation. And so they were, they were not looking for a living being whatsoever. You might say, well, the discovery of the empty tomb, settled, it changed it all, it was dramatic. No, it was unsettling to them. That someone had carried off the body of their Lord. It was unsettling to them that... that uh, Someone had gone in and done that horrible wickedness against it. How much do these people here hate this guy? It's not enough that they crucify him and kill him when he did nothing wrong. They have to go all off and carry off his body and desecrate a corpse. If you don't think people do that because they hate people, you haven't read much history. Okay? So if you read some history, you'll find that during the Reformation, they did this to saints who they declared heretics long after they were dead. Wouldn't that be horrible to be declared a heretic posthumously? And so what did they do? Well, they went and dug up their grave, got their bones, and burned their bones. Why? Because they believed that if you burned, you couldn't go to heaven. If you, if you were burned uh, if your body was burned, that it couldn't be resurrected, you wouldn't be able to participate in the resurrection, and therefore you would miss out on heaven. And that's how much they hated those people. Is that they did profane that resting place, that grave, take that body out and burn it. That's how this world 
apparently they were. And so, yes, that was very likely their thinking that someone went in there to just further insult Jesus Christ. Because really that's all they'd witnessed for several days. From the crown of thorns and the, and the robe that was put on him and the beating that he took uh, and, the, and the spitting upon him and the chiding him. Oh, if, even from the cross, if you are the king of the Jews, do this. If you are this, if you are the son of God, do this, do this. It would make sense to them that that wasn't over yet. That now the holy days are past, that that hatred just would go further and that they would take that body and like uh, the enemies of old, of Israel of old, they would take those bodies and they would display them on the walls of the city to disgrace them. This is what happened to Saul and his son, remember. And it was some of his loyal followers that took their lives in their own hands to go and remove those bodies from the enemy's walls and give them an honorable burial. And so we find that that was their expectation. They arrive and they see an empty tomb and it, and it doesn't say they were rejoicing. It doesn't say they were, this was exciting to them. It doesn't say any of that. But rather, it says that they had to encounter someone, but other passages tell us that they were very concerned. In Luke chapter 24, it says that they were greatly perplexed about this. They were sitting there, they didn't know what it meant. They were concerned about it, and, and it had never dawned upon them that this was something good and wonderful. No, Easter morning was a frightening time to them, a time that brought great anxiety to their life. And then that God intercedes, and God comes onto the scene, and he sends these messages. He says, listen, um, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. See the place where he's lay is the description given in Matthew and Mark. Um, come look, take a look, take a gander at it. He's not here. And further, why are you looking for him here? Why are you even here now? You're not going to find him here. If you really believe in the resurrection, you would not be running to an empty tomb. And yet this is what we want to recreate in our dawn, pre-dawn church services is the examination of an empty tomb. Certainly the empty tomb is empty, but why are you there looking? Why are we there? Why are we exploring that? Why are, why are we, and then when the testimony of the women comes back and, and having been <laughs> corrected by these messengers from heaven, why are you here looking for him? Go tell his disciples, and the disciples, it says, don't believe. They're, it says, you sound like crazy women. Well, that makes sense. They're distraught. What do distraught women get? They get all emotional, and every man knows it. These are distraught women. You're imagining these things. You're just sounding like you're crazy, which means that they weren't collected when they arrived. So even with this encounter with the angels, even with that encounter, with that, that very, very brief encounter with Jesus, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit and a lot more tonight, uh, even with that little encounter with the Lord Jesus, uh, they arrived and they were still in this state, not of settledness, not of peace, but of such a, 
and, and not really even of excitement, almost a hystericalness, that they said, you sound like you're crazy. So it wasn't just the information that Christ, that the grave was open. It was the manner in which it was shared. The disciples just couldn't believe that. And two of them take off running. Well, where are you going to go find a resurrected person? They don't run anywhere you would find a live person. They run to where you would find a dead person. They run to the tomb themselves. And they walk in, they see the empty tomb. Peter first, well, John arrives there first, looks in, but Peter goes in. John goes in, we are told in the Gospel of John. They both see that, and they walk away. And John reports that, well, I believed. Uh, and John uses that word very interestingly throughout his book, as we, if you remember our study in that. In John, there are many levels of belief, and we're not sure which one he's referring to there. Um, but that he says, well, I believe something wonderful happened, not sure exactly what, but something. I believe something. There's a lot of people today that believe something wonderful happened there, but that's, again, John uses the word belief, and we saw that in multiple chapters where these people believe, but then they reject him, and then they're his enemies, the very same people that believed in him, quote-unquote. And yet there's others that truly believed. And what John meant by that, we're not exactly sure, but we find here that these men went to look at the tomb. They understood the words of these women and their testimony, but the manner in which it was delivered, it says, this just doesn't, just, it's fractured and it doesn't make sense. And, and so we're running and it says they don't believe them. They go and they see it and they still are struggling and they are going to go back. And it says they were just dumbfounded. What do we think of all of this? This is not the testimony of men who were expecting a resurrection and were awaiting for it. No, they were still in the depths of a desperate view of what happened and trying to process what, what do we do now? What does this mean to everything he taught us? And the, and the doubt is certainly there. And you would think, well, Jesus should have just intervened right then on the spot as he did with Mary Magdalene, as he did with very, very briefly, and very, very briefly with the women. Um, and, we're, and why didn't Christus intervene right there on the spot? He didn't. He didn't. He left them to themselves. Not just for a few minutes, not just for the trip to the tomb and back, but all day long. He did not reveal himself to them. They had the evidence of the empty tomb, but no encounter with Jesus Christ. And it left them in a condition of turmoil. They had heard the testimony of the women, but they were in a state of hysteria and, and, and were difficult to, to comprehend, and, and they just couldn't believe this. This is, we remember some of what he taught. Uh, but not fully. We don't really grasp this. All of our hopes and expectations were about this earth. And they ended when Christ said it is finished because we didn't understand what those words meant. And we find that as the empty tomb did not resolve anything in their life. It just made it worse. 
It should have been a time of rejoicing. In fact, Christ says to them, rejoice. Be at peace. Because there was lacking joy and there was lacking peace in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives. Because the empty tomb did not resolve anything in their heart. And I'm not sure why we have focused so strongly on the discovery of the empty tomb in our worship services celebrating Christ's resurrection and have completely dismissed the revelation of the risen one in our design of how we conduct ourselves on this day in terms of worship services. We're going to try to correct that a little bit today. Are we going to do this every week? This week? I don't know, but we're going to do it this week because this is the focus of the message is that we are not given hope by an empty tomb. We are given hope by a resurrected Lord. And I want to set these two up as two very different perspectives on what happened that day. So we understand the need to go from ritualistic celebration of an event that we all bear, you know, agree happened because we're here worshiping versus what it means to truly surrender and be at peace and rejoice in a relationship with Jesus Christ. For there are many, many people who believe because they celebrate the resurrection once a year at least, that Jesus rose from the dead. But to them it's just celebrating an empty grave, not a risen Lord. They're really celebrating, and they show that. I'm going to get up early, I'm going to go to the tomb, I'm going to, and, and usually I have a service outside so we can even get that connection, and so we can see the sun rise while we're celebrating that, and it's like, that didn't solve anything. And by the way, we're not worshiping the sun rising. That was just incidental here, it wasn't key. Oh, we got to wait till the morning comes. When the morning comes, there'll be joy, and there wasn't. The sun rose, there it is, the sky, and everyone was a mess. And this persisted throughout the day. If you want to see the condition, then we go back to, to Luke, and not only did uh, uh, it say that their words seemed like idle tales in verse 11, they did not believe, um, and they went and checked it out themselves, and even then that wasn't enough. It was just that they were perplexed and believed. John adds that, that they were just amazed. I mean, they were confused. They, were, they didn't know what to think. And this went on and on and on all day long. Well, two of the disciples are on their way out. They're not sticking around. They're going to go. And it says in verse 13, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're going to go for a little walk and uh, a travel. We don't know who they wanted to visit. We're not sure which ones this is, which disciples these were. But these two, you know, uh, there's so much confusion. You might say, oh, no one's going to leave that. They're all excited. They're all thrilled. Jesus, they're waiting for Jesus. No, you're going to find that they're going to just start scattering. And two disciples are going to start heading off to Emmaus, seven miles away, and by foot that's going to take a little while. And we also know that Thomas went somewhere, right? 
because he's not going to be there tonight. Uh, he's he's going to miss that initial presentation of the resurrected Lord. And so he's off somewhere. So you have, we, we don't have a cohesive response of, of excitement and joy and expectation. No, we are still in a condition of confusion, of unbelief, of amazement, of anxiety. All day long this goes on. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 14, they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it was, so they're talking about it. What are you doing? You're, you're, what does this mean? Is it real? Can you imagine the conversation? Well, we can kind of um, understand the conversation by how Jesus reacts to them. Let's look at the verses. While they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And we saw this case earlier in the day when the women, I mean, here she is, where's the body of my Lord? It's like, uh, he's standing in front of you talking to you. I say, well, why didn't she recognize him? Uh, Well, because we don't really get a good idea of what the resurrected Lord looks like until we read Revelation chapter 1. And we find out that he looked a lot different post-resurrection than pre-resurrection, right? Um, what color was his hair before he died? Well, it wasn't white, but it was when he got resurrected. Because that's the description of Jesus um, in John, in Revelation, by John. And so, yes, that while the features are there, you had... To look because you weren't looking for this now ready for heaven being. You're looking for what you're accustomed to seeing. You're looking for a body that's been mauled, essentially. And not expecting one that has been glorified before you. These men didn't recognize Jesus not because they never looked. It says their eyes were restrained. And so he says, what kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? So now we know the nature of their conversation. Their nature of the conversation isn't talking about, what if he's really alive? What if he's really alive? No, that was not in their conversation about what happened. The discovery of the empty tomb left them sad. Not rejoicing, not happy, not at peace, not with everything resolved, not excitement at all, not anticipating what God might be doing. It left them sad. They heard the testimony of the women, but it didn't sound right. They went, some of them went and saw the empty tomb, still didn't, wasn't right. It just doesn't set right, and they were sad. For them, Christ was still gone. I have to conclude their conversation was more about what happened to his body than whether he was alive or dead. They weren't discussing the possibility of a resurrection. They were discussing the absence of a corpse. It made them sad. What is this conversation you're having? Why are you so sad? The name was once Cleopas. 
answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened in these days? He said to him, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they, him they did not see. So they recount for us everything that happened from their perspective. And so here they lay it out for us. We know the death, burial, and resurrection, or the death and burial, the, the crucifixion, all that was involved in that. And now here's what happened. Uh, first of all, verse 21, we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. And this reveals their misplaced concepts of why Christ came. They were hoping for Israel, to be redeemed, not from her sins, but from the Romans. And they had transferred all of the teachings of Christ that were on a level up here that says, I want to reach the world uh, with the gospel, that I might have everlasting life, that I might never thirst. And they just transferred all of that teaching down into their earthly realm and kept it there. So now it was about getting rid of the Romans, having Israel re pinnacle in glory, uh, fulfilling the promises of the, of the Old Testament for Israel in this one prophet, uh, priest, king, uh, that would throw off all other governments, rule the nations, and they would be high in this kingdom and they would not have hunger or thirst um, because that would be a thing of the past. That was their expectation. He says, that's what we were hoping for. We talked about hope uh, last Lord's Day evening in our evening service, that this is what are we really offering to people in the realm of hope. And so this is what their hope was. And now it's been three days, and all this has happened. So what is the conclusion? The women didn't see a body. They saw a vision of angels that he was alive, and their assumption is, well, um, they challenged the reality of their encounters. And now instead of actually encountering an angel and actually encountering Jesus, well, this was a vision they had somewhere. And they associated all of their accounts with um, a, a condition that came upon them that uh, we now see or for them, they were now seeing as, as maybe a, a aspect of their hysteria, of their, of their sorrow, that somehow they, they just saw these visions. Nowhere in their conversation we find them discussing the possibility, let alone the probability, of Christ being alive. You see, the discovery of an empty tomb does not grant joy, peace. None of it. And all the people that want to circle around an empty tomb and say, well, that's the 
pinnacle. That, that is the key. Once you see the empty tomb, you, you will know, and now you're worshiping at this empty tomb, and, and this is going to resolve everything. It didn't resolve anyone, for there was the first time it was there. It did not bring joy. It brought sadness. It did not settle anything. It brought complete confusion to the point that now even these are starting not to even believe what they've seen. I mean, that's not hard. because No, you didn't really see that. Uh, are you sure? Well, I'm pretty sure. Well, you didn't even recognize him. Are you sure that that, I mean, he didn't even look like what he would have looked like a few days ago, let alone three days ago, coming off the cross. Well, and you can imagine how easy it would have been to, to start to introduce these doubts. These people weren't confident. They describe this and they tell us what their perspective was. We just, um, they, they saw visions. And the vision of angels said he was alive, but we didn't see him. We didn't see him. Peter, John went over there. We, they didn't see him. They could not ever see him. And I just want to share with you that when we, our focus and attention is on the empty tomb instead of the risen Lord, we end up in this exact same condition. Why are so many people, and we, we talk about, well, they come to church on Easter and Christmas twice a year, whatever. Why are so many people um, empty when they recognize that Christ was born and that he was dead and that he was buried and that he rose again? And yet they know that information, but they are still empty. They are void of that peace of that comfort, of that, of that confidence, of that forgiveness, of that relationship. Because for them, these are all ritualistic things that are empty of the person, Jesus Christ. And in many senses, their heart is as empty as that tomb. Because Jesus isn't there either. They're running to an empty tomb instead of running to embrace a living Lord. And then we wonder why it has such little effect. When we have taken it from, well, we're going to sit together, we're going to celebrate an empty tomb, uh, he's alive somewhere, well, yes, we believe in the resurrection in concept, but is he alive today? You know, he just had a vision, and, and he, well, you know, we don't know what that all means, and we can, we can talk about the, the various theological and metaphysical elements of what it means to be alive, things like that. I mean, we could get into all of that, can't we? Because people do. And they still have. Hundreds of years later, we're still having those weird discussions. Because the empty tomb doesn't resolve anything. The discovery of an empty tomb that we celebrate doesn't impact us, and that's why we can get done with that, and then we can go out and do all these other pagan things with, with, with no feeling at all, with, with no conscious, no, no sense of inappropriateness or disconnect from what we just claim because we haven't focused on Jesus Christ. 
empty tomb, just added into all the other things that we do around this time of year. And, and you know, I raise bunnies and I have eggs. So I, I don't know, I, I've watched them and there's nothing glorious about any of them. They are delicious, though. And so um, why do we get, well, we go into all of that. Why? Because we are focused on an empty tomb instead of a risen Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demands a response. You encounter a man who was dead, now stands before you alive by the power of God and will live forever and says, come follow me. It says, he is your Lord. He is one that is owed all obedience, all reverence, all worship. And it should be undivided for no one comes near to that. We're going to talk more about that tonight. But the empty tomb doesn't call for any of that. It calls for speculation and, and elucidating on, well, what could it mean? Oh, I don't know. And you end up with sadness, confusion, disagreement. It's really hard to disagree with some guy standing in front of you. But these people are all discussing it. Conversations all over the place. Of what is real? What is life? What is all? What do these things mean? No. If we're just celebrating an empty tomb, then we have an empty faith. We are called to celebrate a living Lord. And that takes us to another whole time of this wonderful day. Christ's response, I think, still speaks to us. Verse 25 of Luke 24 says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. O foolish ones. And he goes back to talk about the suffering because their hope was dashed, their hope was crushed by the fact that Christ died. And Jesus says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so he talks about all of that, about the suffering the nest, uh, and the elements, and, all, and they're, they're just, their hearts are cut. They are convicted. They, they realize how foolish, they, that they truly are the foolish ones. Because he reveals to them through the scriptures, and he opens them up to them. And they're own description is that our hearts burn within us. Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke? It's just convicting and convicting. And Jesus Christ is just sharing scripture after scripture after scripture saying, yes, the Christ had to do this and this had to happen and this had to happen. Of course this had to happen. Why are you so sad? Why are you so miserable? Why are you so confused? Why are you so pathetic? That simply means that he has sympathy for their situation. He says, when all of this is true, it says their heart burned within them, and they still didn't recognize him. 
And so, yes, the empty tomb is precious and it's evidentiary, but it is not resolving anything in your life. And there are so many that are searching after this while rejecting the Lordship of Christ. That He is a living God who demands your complete surrender. Not a ritualistic um, obligatory celebration of an empty tomb, but rather a life that is fully given over to him because he is the Lord. He is the risen one. He is alive. And this really didn't happen in any of these people's lives early in the morning. It didn't happen at midday. It didn't happen later. In fact, we find them walking. We find out what time of day it was um, because it says in verse 28, then they drew near to the village they were going to and he indicated he would have gone on farther. And, uh, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in there and stayed with them. He was just going to keep walking. They're going to turn off to where they have arrived at their destination. And they, they, they say, oh no, you should stay here um, with us. And, uh, you know, the day is far spent. It's late in the afternoon. We're late into the afternoon. The day is far spent. It's getting close to evening. It's not evening yet. It's getting there. Uh, and we're st- still in the state of confusion, of sadness, of disbelief. I just, we refuse to believe this. We're not even really considering that Christ is actually alive. We're trying to package this in something that makes sense to our human intellect and our experience. And this is what people are doing with the resurrection. They're going to an empty tomb and trying to package it into something that fits their lives instead of making their lives fit a risen Lord. And there is genuine emptiness there. Can people acknowledge Christ's birth, life, death, and yes, even the resurrection and be completely lost? Yes. When their focus is on an empty tomb instead of this is a living God that I must relate to, I must engage with, I must be obedient to, I need to surrender myself to. And that means I need to turn, and that word's repentance, I need to turn from my ritualistic religion into this complete surrender to Jesus Christ to, uh, that I'm going to go his way or no way. And these men hadn't come to that position yet. They were willing to use some extraordinary arguments to uh, discount personal testimonies. Do you see it? The women saw some things, but they were in a really difficult emotional time, and it was probably, and, and their best package they could give to it was a vision of angels. Not that they actually encountered them, 
It was just a vision. Because, you know, Peter and John didn't see angels. Didn't get recorded there. And they didn't see a risen Jesus. So these gals are just, you could just imagine, well, we can do that because we have an empty tomb and not a risen Lord. We think his corpse is somewhere, it just hasn't been found. We kind of think he's like Moses, you know. He's buried somewhere, nobody knows where, because God buried him in a special place, so nobody would worship his burial place. No, we have a risen Lord. And I say, why, and, and yes, I'm using purposely using one title over another one in this instance. A risen Lord. His role as Savior, as Christ, really is focused on the cross. That's where he paid the penalty for our sin. That's where he accomplished that purpose. It's reception. It is, it's acceptation from God is evident in the resurrection, and certainly there is a necessity of the resurrection. But in terms of being a, to save me from my sin, that means he had to pay the penalty for my sin. Uh, and he did that on the cross because he was a sinless sacrifice who was also deity. He could be paid for my sin. The resurrection means that he, that payment has been received by the Father, has, has been pleased in his sight, and now he is resurrected to a living Lord. He is now Lord. It is that power, that authority. We often think of power as, as, as like an energy, but the, really the word there involves the authority. And hence Christ says in Matthew, the shortest section of the resurrection, all authority has been granted to me. Do you remember that? That's the only thing Matthew really wants to record for you, that Jesus said, listen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. Now go you therefore and... Make disciples of all nations, right? That authority is based upon the power of the resurrection. And it's when we surrender to that authority that the reality of Christ it becomes evident in our lives. And so for many people who celebrate his death, celebrate an empty tomb, that's where it ends, and it's ritualistic, and they, they, they acknowledge the events of that. But what they are not acknowledging is that this one who is resurrected has all the authority. He is to be surrendered to 100%. And I have to turn from my own ideas and my way of life, my concepts, my other gods, and I have to turn, and I'm going to have to have him be my one and only Lord and Savior. And I'm going to have to worship him in righteousness and in truth. That this is going to be what defines me now. And none of that has yet occurred to any of these people who found an empty tomb. I know John describes that he believes something. Uh, we also find that uh, in Matthew that the description angel says, Rejoice! You should have joy. And they had some joy, but you also see that it was a mess, which you could understand, given their confusion. And so it is really, all day long, a mess. 
of doubt. Of questioning. Of bewilderment. And for these two guys, of sadness. Everything we hope for is gone. We got to start all over. We think that Thomas was the only doubting one. We even say doubting Thomas. Um, no, he was just like his peers. All of them doubted. They wouldn't listen to eyewitnesses. They didn't consider the strength of the evidence of an empty tomb. They needed to encounter a living Lord. And so it is today. People need more than the ritualistic identification that yes, there was an empty tomb, that yes, there was a manger, that yes, there was a cross. These are ritualistic symbols that do not make Jesus your Savior nor your Lord. And yet these are the things that we emphasize and try to recreate to a sense that somehow that is the place of meaning, the empty tomb. And we have forgotten that the real place of meaning is that meal they shared that night. That is where their minds their lives, their hearts were transformed. The empty tomb did not do that. And we will discover that it's a living Lord that did that. And what is the response once we encounter them? Verse 32 of Luke, it says, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? So they rose up that very hour. Remember, it was late in the afternoon. They had seven miles to hike back to Jerusalem. And it says, uh, they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. And this is where we're going to pick up tonight. What happens when we get this, some information that moves us then? And now uh, these men who had this conversational walk <laughs> to Emmaus uh, turned around and says, um, uh, and they've already had somewhat of a meal, a little bit. At least they started a meal. They left their meal. They left it and they hightailed it back to Jerusalem to get back with the disciples of Jesus Christ to share with them again their encounter with Jesus Christ. And their statement is, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And we're going to discuss that this evening. Let's go, Lord, in prayer this morning. Lord God, we thank you. Not for an empty tomb, but for a living Lord. We thank you. You are alive today in heavenly places interceding for us. That you will come again. Bodily, personally, here to gather your elect and then to come and to establish your kingdom on earth. 
Lord, we look forward to it with great anticipation, but we also recognize that we must surrender our lives. Not to a group of symbols of religious ritual, but to you. And Lord, our prayer is that it might be evident in our worship. That we are centered upon your person, your work. That you might receive the glory, honor, and praise, for certainly to you and to you alone it is due. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.